It's time again to get candid with the cardboard, where I share my first impressions of new to me board games. But this month I have a special treat for you because it is all about Reiner Knizia. Why is that? Well, in a few short weeks we'll be launching his next two exciting new games, Cascadero and Cascadito. And the only way to stave off the long, painful wait is of course to talk about and play other Knizia games. So today I'm going to be sharing my first impressions of the following board games. Foodie Forest, Dragonland, Medici the Dice Game, The Lord of the Rings, Chartay, Lost Cities, Rivals, Cheeky Monkey, Respublica, Classic Art, and High Society. My name is Nick Murray, and you are listening to the Bitewing Games Podcast. going to start things off with Foodie Forest, which I have one play of at four players. Knizia card games are rarely a disappointment for me. Reiner reliably checks all of the design boxes that most great card games should have. Simple rules, breezy play, meaningful interaction, hidden depth, and a clever twist. Granted, he has enough phenomenal card games that even his good ones can be overshadowed by their siblings. But I was still excited to hear that publisher Yellow was bringing back one of his lesser-known trick-taking designs, formerly titled Too Many Cooks. And, as expected, I'm pleased to find that Foodie Forest lives up to his solid standard of quality. I can see why publisher Yellow pivoted the setting from plain soup cooking to anthropomorphic animal soup cooking. The former isn't exactly thrilling, and the latter is at least trendy, even if some gamers are tired of animalized themes. The idea of animals throwing trash in a soup, and the concept of how the trash suit functions, certainly helps justify their decision even further. Although, if you've been around enough older folks, especially in the USA, then the original idea of having a spicy suit that players usually didn't want in their soup makes sense as well. Honestly, with games like this, I would be thrilled with no theme at all if it also included gorgeous abstract card art. In the case of Foodie Forest, we get a theme that fits well enough with fairly generic, cartoonish, anthropomorphic animal art, so it's a wash for me. I was hoping for a presentation with more style, like Yellow's Shot and Totten, or more beauty, like Yellow's Royal Visit, but it's perfectly serviceable, and the thing that really matters here is the gameplay. Foodie Forest is a trick-taking game that reminds me most of Knizia's own Poison, another game about filling a pot with number cards until a threshold sum is reached, forcing that last player, the threshold breaker, to take the played cards. Poison sees players trying to avoid taking cards at all costs, or at least have the most cards of a color, so that color does not get added to that player's score. The difference with Foodie Forest is that you play five rounds, and each round you will simultaneously select and reveal a new scoring objective. If you're lucky, and a bit crafty in later rounds, then you'll hopefully select an objective that nobody else chose, so you aren't competing with others for the same point scoring suit. There are three main suits, fruits, veggies, and bugs, plus a fourth weird suit of trash. Each trick, one player leads with a suit and all others must follow if they are able, otherwise they can play anything. 
cards will continue to be played until a threshold sum of 10 is reached or exceeded. And there are some interesting card values that play with this concept. 1 through 5, but also zeros, reset to zeros, and a 10 has a value of 0 if a player leads with that 10. The winner of the trick takes all of the played cards, and frequently, a trick can last longer or shorter than once around the table. The five possible objective cards you can choose for each round are going for one of the three regular suits, each matching card being worth a point, while avoiding trash cards, each worth a negative point, or going for trash cards and avoiding the zeros, or gaining five points, but then taking a negative point for each card won in a trick. That last one is particularly potent because you can end a round with a ton of negative points if you are not careful to avoid winning tricks. I quite enjoyed our entire session of Foodie Forest due to how different each round feels depending on your objective, your opponent's objectives, and your hand. There is a thrill in being dealt a new hand, evaluating your cards, and then committing to a new objective and hoping it pays off. Since players have to pick a new objective each round, it's also supremely satisfying or hilariously frustrating to try and not match up with others. Life is certainly easier if nobody else cares about collecting your lucrative suit. But that doesn't mean your opponents won't do everything in their power to keep that suit away from you. My favorite aspect of Foodie Forest is the clever interactions in the card play decisions. That moment of bringing a pot sum to 9 so that your left-hand neighbor is backed into a corner and facing a disastrous pot of negative points only for them to whip out a zero at the perfect moment and dodge the bullet. Watching your rival salivate over a growing pot with their desired color only for you to swoop in right before their turn and take it all away. Everybody else playing the perfect cards to set a trap for the leader. It's everything you could want in an enjoyable card game. True, you can't always control the luck of dealt hands or stop an opponent from raking in a ton of points on a fortunate trick. But playing five rounds certainly seemed to even out the fortune while not overstaying its welcome, thanks to the shifting objectives. It may not be the kind of card game like Scout or The Crew that is going to light the world on fire, but Foodie Forest still serves up a hearty meal of fun. I give a good prognosis to Foodie Forest. Next up, let's talk about Dragonland, which I have one play of at three players. And this is the version with the space in between dragon and land. What happens when you take the brilliant scoring system of Tigris and Euphrates and apply it to a family game? Well, apparently you get a wonderful little abstract that is ingenious, or you get the ho-hum roll-and-move game that is Dragonland. In the Land of Dragons, you and two or three other players will be spreading your trio of fantasy characters out across the map in a race to snatch up all the precious gems and eggs from the many volcanoes. Don't worry, you are not robbing the poor dragons, although the mystery as to how they acquired so much treasure in the first place is troubling. <laughs> Rather, you are helping the dragons rescue their possessions before the volcanoes erupt. And although I called this a roll-and-move game, which it is, that isn't something you should worry too much about either. Dragonland allows the needed flexibility of letting you roll two dice and deciding which of your three figures to move with them. You must split up the two dice results between two of your three figures. So you can usually assign a bad roll to a figure where it is still useful. Half the time you don't even care about your dice results. If one of your characters is camping in a volcano that still has more goodies to claim, then you'll simply assign a die to them, not moving the figure at all, 
just so you can snatch up another goodie. Your figure is allowed to take one of the following, a wild diamond, a precious egg, or all of the gems that match its color. The game is essentially a roll and move set collection efficiency race, and players are provided with plenty of tactical abilities to break the rules of movement and collection or work around a bad roll of the dice. There's a nice bit of spice here as you observe the movements of your opponents and concoct maneuvers to snatch up treasures right as they are closing in to claim them. Rivers offer shortcuts, dragons give teleportation rides, and yet more tokens save you turns and actions. At the end of the game, you'll score 10 points for every complete set of gems and eggs you collect. So a well-balanced diet is essential to success. Luckily, the wild diamonds can fill in for your weakest colors. And thus, a tilt of the head and squinting of the eyes reveals this game to be a distant relative to Tigris and Euphrates. It's yet another nice touch that elevates this experience over much of the mass market family titles that plague our local store shelves. No, Kinesia did not design a bad game here. He simply didn't design a very interesting one. Waiting a full round just to receive two dice that you roll, maybe move your figures a couple spaces, and pick up one or two tokens isn't all that interesting. And it doesn't feel great to waste a movement roll just so you can pick up yet another red or blue or green gem from the location that you are already on. The pace of the game is too slow for the amount of satisfaction that a single turn brings. Okay, so maybe it's not as thrilling or engaging as Tigris and Euphrates or Yellow and Yangtze. And let's be honest, what other game is? But it's still a worthwhile family game, especially with kids, right? Well, maybe in a vacuum. The big problem is that Kinesia's own Treasures of Nakbi takes the roll and move mechanism and combines it with a far more interesting and streamlined experience. Dragonland has so many special tokens with their own little rules that it kind of boxes out much of its target audience. And the tempo is slow enough that it begins to drag for both parents and children. Either give us something more energetic or give us something less time consuming, preferably both. By the time the last egg was collected from the board and the game end was triggered, we were plenty ready for it to be over. I give a poor prognosis to Dragonland. Moving on, we're going to look at Medici the Dice Game, which I have four plays of at one and two players. Grell Games, Vincent Dutrait, and Dr. Kinesia had a really good thing going with their Medici line of games. It's a shame that we still haven't seen any part of what they were cooking up for Medici Reformation, the mysterious and unreleased fourth game in this now-deceased line. But for those who are willing to look or dig hard enough, there are still three solid titles floating around in the market that are a joy to explore. Medici being the original with its many tough auctions. Medici the card game being next in line, replacing the bidding with even spicier elements of push your luck. And Medici the Dice Game being the youngest of the trio. A surprisingly solid roll and write with a low-key banger of a solo mode. All three designs manage to fully preserve that uniquely Medici feeling. The competing priorities of establishing goods monopolies versus stocking the most valuable ship. Medici the Dice Game maintains those anxiety-riddled decisions by forcing you to commit to one, two, or three of the dice you've rolled and then leaving the remaining dice out in the middle for your opponents to feast upon. While you dream of the perfect rolls, your dreams rarely come true. Do you settle for that spice die now, although it's only a lowly two, 
just to keep yourself ahead of the spice competition. Do you take a 5 gold to give your ship a boost and sacrifice an opportunity to advance up a good track? Do you settle for a painful zero value cloth just so you can launch up the cloth track by two whole spaces? As per usual, Reiner knows how to make you writhe with your dice decisions. The biggest flaw of this experience is mostly a minor annoyance, but it's worth mentioning here. Some of the goods tracks are so dark, particularly the purple and blue tracks, that it becomes extremely difficult to see your own pencil markings on them, let alone your opponent's markings. I kid you not that at certain lighting angles, your pencil markings will completely vanish. That's not the kind of readability you want when everybody's competing for track majorities. Luckily, this one has only proven to be a nuisance rather than a deal breaker for us. Despite the graphical gripes, this version of Medici has a couple major advantages over its counterparts. First, it's lightning quick. We're talking 15 or 20 minutes compared to 45 or 80 minutes from the other two games. Second, it has a banging solo mode, which the other two games do not have. The solo mode of Medici the Dice Game ratchets things up by punishing you with all of the dice that you don't take. Just like in the multiplayer game, you roll five dice and select one, two, or three of the results to add to your sheet. But that leaves one to four neglected dice that retaliate with the petty jealousy of a vengeful ex-lover. These growing lines of circles become thresholds that you must reach in order to score points for each type of good. And worst of all, rejecting a specific good too many times means that you don't get to score for your goods monopolies at all. This 10-minute Medici-flavored solo challenge manages to hit the spot like few other solo games do. As somebody who normally completely ignores the solo variant at the back of the rulebook, I am majorly impressed with what Reiner cooked up here. Now, after touring the entire line of games, I still find myself leaning toward Medici the card game as my favorite of the bunch. And I know that is utter blasphemy to those who love the original Medici. But for me, the auctions are the least interesting part of Medici and the least interesting style of bidding in Kinesia's wide-spanning auction catalog. Medici the card game manages to distill its mercantile agony down to its most flavorful form. But the board game and dice game still manage to have their own merits, even if they both also have graphic design annoyances. I gave a good prognosis to Medici the dice game. Next game on the list... Lord of the Rings, which I have one play of at two players. Now, despite being a big fan of the trilogy, both the books and the movies, Lord of the Rings is one Kinesia game that I've been putting off for a long time. Much of the discourse that I've heard around this cooperative classic has a feeling of respectful dismissiveness. Respect for launching the cooperative game genre, and dismissiveness for being surpassed by its successors. I must confess that I largely agree with this sentiment. The game follows the key events of the trilogy via a sequence of spaces along a primary board and secondary boards. The goal is to progress all the way to Mordor and cast the ring into the fires of Mount Doom before the ring bearer crosses paths with Sauron on the corruption track. You'll be managing a hand of cards, deciding what to play when or when to draw more cards while trying to avoid rolling the dreaded die as much as possible. A roll in the die can result in nothing at all, but more likely it will result in your hobbit moving closer to Sauron or vice versa, which is even worse. As you progress through these events, 
you'll be presented with a variety of challenges and decisions that you must overcome, sometimes individually and other times together. But it all comes down to a balance of managing your resources while not letting any one game board element become too neglected. It's impressive to find so much familiar DNA in this 23-year-old design that inspired so many great titles after it. The legendary Pandemic and its juggling of priorities and sandwiching of player actions between problematic events. The cult classic Beowulf the Legend and its sequential map of episodes that forces players to look ahead and manage their hand of resource and wild cards. Or the asymmetric character abilities and randomized special cards found in numerous cooperative games which bring more variety to each play. Lord of the Rings is a board game that deserves massive respect for the foundation it laid and for the way it successfully integrated the core themes of its source material into a revolutionary gameplay experience. Yet it is admittedly not quite as clean as Pandemic or as thrilling as Beowulf the Legend. It doesn't hold up as well against those designs which either streamline its systems or flesh out its most promising concepts. I must admit that I'm much hungrier to revisit the movies or the books than I am the board game. But at least it's better than Rings of Power. I give a fair prognosis to Lord of the Rings. Next, we're going to look at Shartae, which I have three plays of at two players. Now, I have to admit, I wasn't expecting much from Reiner Knizia's Shartae. How could I when it comes in the world's smallest box and contains nothing but nine tiles and a rule sheet? I think the last time I tried a game this minimalist was perhaps Tussie Mussy, and that one was so slight that it practically evaporated off our table as we were playing it. But if anybody can maximize the potential of minimal rules and components, it's the good doctor. Charte presents itself exactly as it should, with elegance and grace, much like a hand-carved chess set or a collection of game pieces dug up by archaeologists. There's a clean and alluring timelessness to Charte and its nine square topographical tiles. Two players act as cartographers, one in favor of land and the other in favor of sea, quibbling over a map according to their questionable memory of the landscape. I'm certain that there was an island right here, cartographer one declares, as they place a tile in the corner. No, 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 you have it all wrong. That wasn't an island, it was a peninsula! Cartographer 2 exclaims as they rotate the tile 90 degrees clockwise and connect the island back to the mainland. This charming theme is perfectly befitting this game, because that is precisely what you are allowed to do on your turn. Either place out the next tile from the stack, or rotate a placed tile 90 degrees clockwise. Your shared play area is limited to a 3x3 square grid. Once all the tiles are out and the map is complete, the game immediately ends, and whichever player had a larger connected mass, land or sea, spreading across more tiles wins. If there is a tie, then the player who placed the last tile loses. And for the finishing touch, there can only ever be two rotate actions in a row, leaving the next player with no choice but to place the next tile after two consecutive rotate actions. Within this careful construct of rules, one finds many brilliant subtleties. If the land player spends much of their turns rotating the placed out tiles, a petty but effective sabotaging of the water connections, the water player has their own advantage of putting out new tiles and deciding how the map takes shape. The tiles themselves feature various arrangements of land and sea. Some are split 50-50 while others are heavily imbalanced in either direction. 
Both the positioning and the rotation of a tile are vital factors, and if the placing player is smart, then they'll choose a spot and a direction that costs their opponent two or three rotations to even make a difference on the connections. As the map grows from one to nine tiles, the tension and urgency quickly ramps up. In the twilight stage of the game, one clever maneuver can make all the difference. Much like the best abstract games, you'll scour the play area for the finishing blow as you try to back your opponent into a corner, giving them no other option but to concede with the final tile placement. It's a far cry from the recent flood of humdrum multiplayer solitaires, that of taking tiles and making your own personal areas in a sleepy effort to squeeze maximum points out of the system. In all honesty, I have never encountered such a small, simple, and quick game, we're talking 5-10 to 10 minutes, that was this rich and deep. Show me something, anything, as small as Charte that manages to pack this big of a punch. Go ahead, I'll wait. In the meantime, I'll give an excellent prognosis to Charte. Next game on my list, Lost Cities Rivals, which I have one play of at four players. Now let me make this clear right up front, Lost Cities Rivals is a good game. It's just not a game that I want to play again. Essentially, Lost Cities Rivals is what you get if Ra and Lost Cities had a baby. Two to four players are competing to embark on expeditions while collecting sets of ascending cards. The more ascending cards of a single color you get, the more points that set will score you. But how you acquire those cards is through a raw-like structure. Players either use their action to add another card to the market, or they initiate an auction where the highest bidder takes all, or at least everything they want. Because Lost Cities Rivals draws its DNA from two masterpiece designs, it displays all the genes of a solid game. The only problem is that this title acts more like a spoiled child who is too lazy to live up to its parents' legacies. To me, what makes the Lost Cities line special is the high-stakes risk of embarking on another expedition, which starts you out with massive negative points until you can progress far enough to get out of the red. All of the other games in this line, even the Roll and Write, possess this trademark trait, all except for Lost Cities Rivals. With this spinoff, there is nothing to discourage you from starting an expedition which may never lead anywhere. More cards always equates to more points. In the case of Raw, the thing I love about that tabletop treasure is its perfect combination of gripping push-your-luck market filling and spicy sun disc auctioning. Lost City's Rivals retains neither of those. Rather, it waters both features down with simple card flips until somebody decides to start bidding coins. And whoever bids the most coins takes the cards. The spent coins then go to the center pot, which will be split between all players each time one of the four decks is depleted. Now, the saving grace of this design is perhaps two clever features. For one thing, you don't have to take all the cards in the market when you win an auction, and deciding which ones to take and which ones to leave are tough choices, because once you commit to a value, then you can never take a lower card of that suit. For another thing, of all the cards you leave in the market, you are allowed to remove one from the game. This is especially zesty when you know the card is useless to you and extremely valuable to another player. Thanks to those two elements, I would willingly play Lost Cities Rivals again if somebody insisted. And I would enjoy it. But if I'm in the mood for some Lost Cities goodness, this is the last option in the whole line that I would reach for. And if I'm hungry for a game of auctioning and set collection, nothing beats the far more interesting raw or the far faster hot lead for me. I give a fair prognosis to Lost City's rivals. Next, we're going to talk about Cheeky Monkey, which I have four plays of with adults at three and four players, 
plus many more plays with kids, specifically my four-year-old daughter. Cheeky Monkey is one of those original concepts that designer Rainer Knizia has riffed on in later years with other designs. Those other titles include Family Inc. and No Mercy. The concept is simple. Draw and reveal cards or tiles until you decide to stop or bust. If you don't bust, these items will get added to your score collection, assuming other players don't steal them from you. Where Family Inc. and No Mercy were extremely similar to one another in their mechanisms, Cheeky Monkey is the most unique of the bunch. Each animal tile you draw from the stuffed monkey, yes, our edition comes packaged in a stuffed monkey, which acts as a draw bag. Anyway, each tile is worth one point. If you can collect a majority of an animal type by the end of the game, then you'll score bonus points. You'll bust if you pull out the same animal type more than once in the same turn. But you'll cheer if you pull out the same animal type that is on top of an opponent's stack. You'll steal their animal and place it next to your own. If you happen to bust, then you must dump all your newly acquired tiles back into the supply and end your turn. But at the conclusion of a non-busted turn, you'll take all the new tiles you've collected and stack them on top of your towering collection however you please. If the new tiles you earned are all the same type, meaning you only drew out one tile and possibly stole more, you can even add these tiles to the bottom of your stack, where they'll be maximally protected from sticky fingers. The game earns its name in the monkey tiles, which are the most common animal in the supply. Anytime you pull out a monkey, you are allowed to force a trade with another player, giving them your monkey and taking the top tile on their stack. This is all the funnier when you pull another monkey in the same turn to then steal the monkey back that you just traded them. The monkey swapping, tile stealing, and majority competitions offer enough nuance to this game of push your luck that I'm always engaged by it. Even the simpler kid-friendly rules prove to be an enjoyable time for myself and my four and two-year-old girls. Cheeky Monkey has the range and flexibility to work either as a dumb, funny filler game with adults or an engaging, exciting game with kids. You can either count tokens, weigh probabilities, and crunch the numbers to determine your decisions, or you can simply follow your gut and hope for the best. In a lot of ways, it's Kinesia family-friendly fare at its finest. That said, you certainly don't need to own more than one of these games, namely Cheeky Monkey, Family Inc., and No Mercy. No Mercy is definitely the most pure, portable, quick, and chaotic of the three. Cheeky Monkey is the most versatile and flexible of the bunch, both the most hobbyist-friendly with the full rules and the most kid-friendly with the simple rules. And Family Inc. is just so overpoweringly oversized that I struggle to find its merits within that big box of air. At any rate, Cheeky Monkey and its siblings are a good time to be had. Not my favorite light push-your-luck Kinesi experience, not as dramatic or rewarding as Gang of Dice or Hot Lead, but a very solid one. I give a good prognosis to Cheeky Monkey. Next game we're going to look at, High Society, which I have 7 plays of at 3, 4, and 5 players. You know, it seems like the more games you play, the more your tastes and preferences change. What once was thrilling can eventually become dull, and what once was quickly dismissed can later make a big comeback. One of the great comebacks in my collection has undoubtedly been Reiner Knizia's High Society. Just listen to what I first wrote about it roughly four years ago. Quote, High Society is like a hybrid of QE and For Sale, yet perhaps not as good as either of them. Of course, High Society likely inspired both of these games, so we have Dr. Kinesia to thank for inspiring greatness in the auctioning genre. 
If you only want the best auctioning games in your collection, skip this one and go for the previously mentioned. That said, High Society will remain in my collection because it's small, fast, cheap, and contains just enough unique features to make me want to break it out occasionally. These features being the special reward cards and the bidding restrictions via limited cards of varying monetary values. End quote. Skip High Society? Was I insane? <laughs> Apparently I was, but at least I was sensible enough to hang on to this gem. Please allow me to share my improved take on High Society and why my opinion has changed drastically since that very first impression. As time marches on and my total number of logged board game plays ventures deep into the 2000s, I find myself appreciating more and more the games that are most efficient and unique. Games that require a minimized investment of time, energy, and shelf space while offering a maximally refreshing and distinct experience are the ones that have the best shelf life. As much as I enjoy auctioning, enough to play literally dozens of different auction games, there are loads that I have now parted ways with. I loved the endless inflation potential of QE, but I hungered for a faster pace from it. I enjoyed the novel coin upgrading of Nadavalier, but I gave up on the exhausting setup and rules teach. I fancied the unique bidding discs of Furnace, but I longed for them to be grafted onto a more interactive game. The list of old crushes goes on, but do you know which title has truly embedded itself in my heart? Well, there are plenty of games actually, but one of them is High Society. High Society stands as one of the most elegant and clever filler games in my entire collection. Often in a blazingly quick 15 or 20 minutes, the game takes you on a roller coaster of decadent squandering. Players flaunt their wealth with frivolous luxuries while trying to avoid public scandals. Only the most vain player will come away victorious, unless they accidentally find themselves to be the poorest of the group at the end of the game, suddenly ostracized for their relative poverty. This brilliant design conjures so many agonizing decisions out of so few cards. How much are you willing to spend on the latest hot luxury? How much are you willing to pay out to maintain your fragile reputation? Which money cards will you lock in for this bidding round? Which card values are you willing to part with forever? How soon will the end of the game sneak up on you? Are you willing to suffer a scandal now in hopes of it weakening your opponent's bidding power later on? Is a 3-value luxury suddenly worth way more than the 6-value luxury from several auctions ago, just because the end of the game is right around the corner? Will you spend big and play the short game, or bide your time and money for the long game? Man, oh man, this design is something else. I was reminded of this very recently when we played a couple back-to-back 3-player -back rounds of it that fired on all cylinders. Long live high society, the nearly... 30-year-old classic. I give an excellent prognosis to this one. Next game we're going to talk about Res Publica, which I have one play of at three players. Res Publica is an ancient Kinesia game, even older than High Society, that has long been on my bucket list. I'm glad to have finally tried it, as this is one of his first notable designs ever published. The first edition released way back in 1991. The Good Doctor was seemingly on a negotiation kick at the time because Quo Vadis was published the following year. I'm reminded a bit of Uwe Rosenberg's Bonanza after playing Res Publica. The former is a light negotiation set collection card game where the order of the cards in your hand is restricted, and the latter is a light negotiation set collection card game where your hand is free but the negotiations are limited. 
The key twist to ResPublica is that when you initiate a trade on your turn, you can only make an offer or a request, never both. You can say things like, I would like a monk and an Anglo-Saxon, or I have two shipbuilding or two huns up for offer. And the other players will each respond with a request or offer in return for your request or offer. The active player can then accept one request or offer or simply pass on all of them. Furthermore, a request or an offer can only have a combination of two card types. But types can have a rather loose interpretation such as any people cards or two pairs of any type and so on. Actually, my favorite moment of the game was when another player generously requested any one player card from my hand, and so I gave him a card that was, at that late stage in the game, completely useless, resulting in a good laugh. Essentially, the game is go fish, but in negotiation form. Request or offer specific cards, collect enough cards of a type to cash them in for points, draw more cards into your hand at the end of your turn, rinse, and repeat. This restricted trading mechanism is rather unique and engaging. That is certainly a highlight of the design. But ResPublica does seem to fuel a runaway leader theory in that the players who form early sets can draw more cards each turn and thus form sets more easily to be able to draw even more cards and amass a huge hand. There is a limit of 3 cards max that you can draw per turn and everybody starts out being able to draw one, but even that small upgrade makes a rapidly snowballing difference. In truth, this feels like a classic card game, and it has an interesting twist that I've never seen replicated. But in a lot of ways, namely perceived imbalance, spotty pacing, slightly overlong game length, and a muted experience, this one is showing its age. I'm grateful to have visited this noteworthy design, but I'm not dying to return to it. I give a fair prognosis to Res Publica. Finally, we're going to wrap things up by looking at classic art, also known as members only, which I have two plays of at three and four players. The problem with tracking down a used copy of an out-of-print, obscure Kinesia game is that there is a good chance that right after you buy it, a publisher will unveil a newer and prettier edition of the game. Sorry to all of you who bought Quo Vadis right before we announced Zubatis. Such was the case when I acquired a Japanese version of Members Only just for Simon to announce and release the game as classic art mere weeks later. So here I sit now with two copies of the same game. I couldn't resist the look of classic art and I'm finding it hard to sell Members Only with the influx of supply. But at least it's a good game. And aside from a common thread of theme, designer, and some elements of hand management and shared incentives, this one doesn't have all that much in common with its branded sibling, Modern Art. But that's okay too. Just don't come into this one expecting a chaotic auction romp, and you'll be fine. Despite the box size and included game board, I find it most helpful to think of Classic Art as a humble card game focused primarily on betting, but with a sprinkling of bluffing. Players are dealt a hand of cards from a deck of 65. There are 13 of each card in 5 categories or suits. Most of the cards are simple positive cards, but each suit has a couple negative cards as well. You will deal out most, but not all, of the cards. And this is important because the betting revolves entirely around how many cards of each suit have been dealt out. The only information you start with in a round is your own hand of cards, and a couple more cards from the deck that start on display. 
all other information will be slowly unveiled as players take turns playing two cards at a time from their hand and placing more bets along the way. You get the chance to drop a high risk and high reward bet at the very beginning of the round. And then you are welcome to spend more betting tokens as the round marches on. You can either bet that a suit will have less than or equal to 1, 2, 3, or 4 total on the board at the end of the round, or you can bet that a suit will have greater than or equal to 5, 6, 7, or 8 total on the board at the end of the round. Obviously, the payout gets much better if you place your bet on the tail ends of this probability curve, but such greed can also result in nothing but a lost betting token. Every bad bet results in you losing the betting token that you wagered that round meaning you'll have less opportunities to make bets in future rounds. This restriction continues until you are down to one or zero tokens, at which point you blessedly get all of your tokens back. This interesting wrinkle creates a zesty ebb and flow from one round to the next. When your bet tokens are plentiful, you feel compelled to place many bets on nothing more than a whim. Once you've lost a couple tokens, you find yourself being much more cautious with your bets. And if you happen to get stuck with only two bets in a round, then you might throw caution to the wind because the worst thing that could happen is that your bets fail and you get all of your betting tokens back. All of this is balanced against an icy hot interaction between players of shared incentives, meaning betting on the same side of the same suit, or racing to claim the best betting spots first and deciding which card in your hand to trash at the end of the round, causing a potentially devastating swing for an opponent and their bets. It's classic Kinesia card play at its finest a game that I would happily play anytime. That said, this design was originally created and published in the 90s, and it certainly shows. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Classic art is just much more subtle and clean than the more bombastic or flashy betting games or card games of today. There are no loud, dramatic moments like the racing of Ready, Set, Bet, Winner's Circle, or Camel Up. There are no outright acts of war against opponents or activations of wacky powers like an Equinox, or Longshot the Dice Game. Rather, Classic Art is the stuff of calm waters, thoughtful bets, and gentle bluffs. For many of today's gamers, that may not be enough, but for me, it still lands like a warm, familiar blanket on cold skin. I give a good prognosis to Classic Art. And that's going to do it for this episode of Candid Cardboard. And if you made it this far, then it's just time to admit you are a Reiner Kinesia fan. So why not embrace the fun? Be sure to follow Reiner Kinesia's upcoming Kickstarter games, Cascadero and Cascadito, our next Kickstarter project launching on October 10th. You can find a link to this Kickstarter project in the description of this podcast. And if you haven't yet, come join the Reiner Kinesia Enthusiast Discord community where fellow gamers chat all things Kinesia. These podcast episodes are only made possible through the support of fellow gamers and fans like you. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Nick Murray, and you've been listening to the Bite Wing Games Podcast.